0: Um, I like fish-out-of-water stories, stories where people are in places where they don't belong. Uh, Novelists and movie makers like stories like this, too. Uh, One of my favorites is time time travel stories, where a guy goes back in time and tries to fit in so people won't know he's from the future, or when a guy from the past comes to the future and marvels at all our new technology. But a very common device for doing these kind of stories are uh, trading places stories. My favorite Mark Twain novel is The Prince and the Pauper, or... uh, uh, there was a movie back in the 80s, I think, that was titled Trading Places, where these cynical old coots on Wall Street uh, um, picked up, uh, I think it was Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, and Eddie Murphy was like a street guy, and they did this social experiment where they thought, if we could take this street guy and give him all the advantages of the intern, you know, maybe he can be a successful stockbroker, too, and it was a pretty funny movie. Um, a more recent version uh, would be uh, there was a movie a couple years ago called Freaky Friday where a mom and her teenage daughter change places and each one finds that the other's got harder job than they realized. Well, this is a trading places story today, and it's a story that Jesus told, and it's a story about a guy who's at the very top, and and more even like we'll have to look at some of the details of the parable to recognize just how rich this rich guy was, um, and then a guy who's at the bottom, and it's hard to imagine getting any more uh, more Horrible in your situation than, than poor Lazarus, and they're going to they're going to exchange. You know, the guy at the top is going to go to the bottom, and the guy at the bottom is going to go to the top. And what brings about their change in circumstance? They both die. And so it's a time to today's a time to reflect on eternity. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we're. I think we've been doing parables about two months and we've got about a month left. So we've learned several tools for analyzing the parables that'll help us really any parable that you read. It'd be a good idea to do these things. First of all, look for the surprise. There's a huge surprise in this parable and we're going to see it's going to smack us in the face right off. Um, People 2,000 years ago very commonly believed it was part of Jewish culture and part of the ancient Near East that rich people were rich because they deserved to be rich because they were good and God blessed them. And poor people were poor because they deserved to be poor, because they were bad. They were lazy. They were evil. They were getting what they deserved. And uh, we claim not to believe that today, but we we don't we haven't totally gotten away from it. We still kind of do sometimes, it uh, seems to me. Uh, um, so uh, it's not even something that we've totally laid aside. And it's, it, it's based on some truth. I mean, God does bless righteousness, and, and sin does bring suffering. But it's like, well, uh, let me put it this way. Does all sin produce suffering? Yes. Does all suffering result from sin? No. They don't follow. Uh, Does all righteousness produce blessing? Yes. Does all blessing result of righteousness? No. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so making those connections and taking them too far and assuming any rich guy is blessed to God, any poor guy is being penalized righteously penalized by God that's too far but that was definitely where they would have taken this back then so to see him change places right away that's a huge surprise look for the main idea of the story the story is about heaven and hell and yet I think it would be unwise to try to craft a geography of heaven and hell based on this story or to to assume details of the story into our theology like well we'll be able to talk back and forth and we'll be able to see back and forth I don't really think so um, I think this is a story. It, it, there's a clear message about two destinies, but I, don't, I think we need to be careful about taking that too far. What's the audience expect? I just told you the uh, the audience is going to be flabbergasted to, to hear that the rich guy's on the on the bottom, and the poor guy, the beggar, is going to be on top at the end. And then uh, you look for the good guys and the bad guys. Wh- whom does Jesus approve of when he tells these parables, and why? And whom does he disapprove of, and why? Because there's a there's a possibility of interpreting this too far the other way and saying, well, now now Lazarus got rewarded just because he was poor and the rich guy got penalized just because he was rich. Well, I've taken it too far. You know, being rich is not evil and being poor isn't isn't necessarily good. There's something else that goes with it. And yet that most that's something's mostly unspoken in this parable. Also, it helps sometimes to take a look at the audience. Who's Jesus talking to? This is a parable for believers. Um, We've seen a variety of different audiences as we've looked at it back the last couple months. This parable is exactly the same audience as last week. He's talking, Jesus is talking to his disciples. In fact, it's kind of a continuation of the theme. Both of these come from chapter 16. And remember, last week's parable was about the shrewd manager. Uh, Just a quick review, Gary Enrig, the writer of this book on parables that I'm reading, uh, I thought had a very nice conclusion of the uh, uh, analysis of, of the parable of the shrewd manager. He said the the point of that parable, and this is a review from last week, is that a choice is inescapable. We can have only one master. Jesus wants us to understand that we do not have the option of being masters of mammon, and that's like the personification of worldly wealth there. We can be stewards of it or we can be servants of it, but those are our only options. Either God owns our wealth or it owns us. And Jesus, after teaching the parable, the one we looked at last week, he gave us three applications, and these, these are the three. Shrewdness with money can achieve eternal goals, stewardship of our money has eternal consequences, and stewardship of money prevents bondage to money. If I recognize that it's all God's and that I just get to manage it, that will help me avoid being enslaved by my own money. So this week, I thought I'd go ahead and give you the summary before we dig into the details, and you can kind of look through as we go through the details and see if you think I got it right. What's the point of uh, this parable, the one about uh, Lazarus and the rich man? First of all, the point is that earthly wealth or poverty is not a sign of God's favor or disfavor. Secondly, we do all face one of two different eternal destinies. And finally, God has revealed himself enough for us to make a decision about him. We don't need a sign. We don't need to be nice to get a cross in the sky or some fire from heaven or something like that. But we have enough. God has revealed himself enough through scripture and, and just through through creation and and we have enough information to make a decision about God. So let's get back to the details. We're on chapter 16, uh, starting with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Some graphic details, even some nasty details in this one. Uh, let's take a, a, a look here. Dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. Uh, I want to explain that means a little more to the audience that would originally listen to Jesus than it means to you and me. Uh, We might have some people here dressed in purple today, and that doesn't have the same significance 2,000 years ago that it does today. It's more than just a fashion choice um, in in the ancient Near East. East. Uh, Jesus isn't saying that the rich man just dressed like a dandy or was a real fashionable dresser. Purple was very rare, very scarce, and very, very valuable, uh, very expensive. Um, might be more history than you need to know, but the Phoenicians harvested purple. That's why they became rich. They were sea traders north of Israel, like, like what we would call Lebanon now. Um, the word phonics comes from Phoenicians. They spread the alphabet all around. Uh, that's that's what, what historians remember about them. And there was a shellfish out in the Mediterranean called murex, I think, and from that they harvested this purple dye. Very difficult to do, very labor-intensive, and because of its scarcity, very, very expensive. Even into the Middle Ages, purple was what rich people wore. Uh, regular folks didn't wear purple. So you know, with synthetic dyes, any of us can wear purple if we, wanna, if we want to. 2,000 years ago, wearing purple meant you were the richest of the rich. It's what royalty wore. Uh, fine linen... Um, again, not, not a common thing for him to wear. Lived in luxury every day implies uh, that he ate well every day. And, again, that's something that's really hard for us to grasp. We all eat well every day, um, or we all can eat well every day. We eat too well every day. Um, 2,000 years ago, they had not totally mastered the food supply to the point that everyone could expect to eat well every day. In fact, uh, maybe you recall a couple years ago we, did the, we were going through Matthew and we studied the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus fed the 5,000, they went nuts. They wanted to make him king right then. Why? This guy can handle the food. If this guy can bring us food, he can do it all. And so they were thrilled by that. And so a guy who's able to eat well every day, that sets him apart as, as, as one of the haves as opposed to one of the have-nots, where that wouldn't really set us apart. You know, we all eat well um, in 21st century America, right? So... Um, that's the rich guy richer than richer than rich or richer than just being well off relatively speaking you know wealthier than we're used to Lazarus he's the only character in all the parables that's named Uh, and because of that uh, some think that this isn't a parable at all but a true story Uh, I tend to think not the language is kind of figurative it seems more like a story than a true story about two actual guys but it doesn't really matter the significance won't change the name literally means he whom God helps. And so that's an apt name. Notice that it says Lazarus was laid at the gate. Uh, there's a passive verb there, which means to me that Lazarus didn't take himself to the gate. He was laid there, which implies that he was crippled and unable to, to move himself around. And then this last scene. Um, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, I think that's a little difficult for modern American pet owners to grasp. Um, this isn't your pet poodle showing you some affection. Um, I was at Sandra's. Jean and I went to Sandra's house last night, and uh, um, some of you have met Sandra's dog, uh, Angel, an adorable dog, very affectionate. And Angel licked me all up the arm, and uh, I'm not totally germaphobic, but I'm not real excited about that. Um, but uh, but Sandra's dog is very pampered, very well cared for. Sandra's dog I'm sure receives better medical care than I did when I was a child. Um, and, and very well fed, doesn't you know, go through garbage or anything like that. It lives inside, very nice and clean dog. And so um, that's a whole different experience than living or, or, or being approached by dogs in ancient Israel 2000 years ago. Remember in a, in a society I mean, think about a, more, more like a wolf than our pet dogs. You know, these are, are wild dogs roaming the street. Think about a society where the people don't have enough food. What do the dogs eat there? They eat anything, they eat whatever they can get to. And uh, you don't want them licking you. Um, and so, and, and for the uh, Jewish people 2,000 years ago, dogs would have been an unclean animal. So this just would have been, this is as low as you can sink to have to be on the street, waiting for you know begging for food and to have dogs approach you like that in fact later rabbis had a saying that there were three situations that were so horrible it was like not having a life at all depending on food from another being ruled by one's wife and having a body covered with sores this seems to be like a very random collection of bad things that could happen to you but Lazarus has two out of the three going on at least. We don't really know anything if he, about he was married, what his relationship was with his wife. He might have had all three of them going on. But, uh, I mean, this guy is doubly cursed, according to the, the, the rabbinical saying. Let's go back to the story. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. What's this mean to be carried to Abraham's side? The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The point is here that this is a place of great comfort and peace and great honor. Abraham is the patriarch of, of the Israelite nation. It's, it would be comparable to us. to like He's the George Washington of Israel. And so we're going to be placed in such honor at, at our death that, that we're going to go get to hang out with George Washington if George Washington was more of a spiritual religious leader too. They admired Abraham not only as the founding father of all Israel, but, but honored his, the, the religious and spiritual tradition that he brought to them. The surprise here, you know, I've already mentioned it, is that it was very much a part of their culture then that the rich deserved to be rich and were blessed by God because they'd earned it, and the poor deserved to be poor and were cursed by God because they'd earned it. And yet at their death, these guys switch the guy who's down at the bottom, now he's in the place of honor and comfort. And the guy who was on top of the world, now he's in torment. And again, I, I don't think it's politically correct to admit to believe in that way now, but, but I think sometimes we do. I, I sure see, see some of it. The Bible doesn't say a lot about heaven and hell. Um, in fact, usually it doesn't use those same words. You know, last Easter, we talked about heaven uh, it's more heaven's more commonly referred to by Jesus as glory or eternal life. Uh, hell is used. There's a we use the phrases heaven and hell more commonly today. But there are a lot of words in the Bible that would translate as that. Uh, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna. Uh, more commonly, when Jesus is talking, he'll say something like outer darkness, or he'll separate the sheep from the goats, you don't want to be with the goats because the sheep are with him. Um, and he'll. The point of this is the Bible unmistakably teaches that there are two distinct eternal destinies. Where can you find that in the Bible? You can find it in Revelation, but the more commonplace you can find teachings on this are when Jesus is talking. Jesus teaches more about two separate and distinct eternal destinies than anyone else in scripture. So that's, it's not, it's not one of our favorite topics. I don't ever want to go back to the kind of churches I grew up in where we motivate people out of fear. And I can, remember, I can remember going home every Sunday night for, oh, it seemed to me like I prayed the sinner's prayer on, on, uh, in my bed every Sunday night for about six months because I was so scared. And, uh, and that's, it's the kindness of God that motivates us to repentance, not the fear of his wrath. Yet Jesus plainly teaches that there are two distinct, separate destinies for, for humans and that the decisions we make about him here and now Uh, on this earth, are what govern our next world. Back to the story. Verse verse 24, we're going to see that the rich man makes three different requests and all three are going to be denied. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Funny to me, the rich guy hasn't quite got it that things have changed because he still sees Lazarus as his pawn. You know, send my boy, lazarus to go do this thing for me he at least calls him by name now i wonder if he would have uh, condescended to do that when he was laying outside the gate but uh, uh the request is going to be denied verse 25 abraham replied son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while lazarus received bad things but now he is comforted here and you're in agony now here's where i wonder if the parable's taken us the other direction does that mean it's bad to be rich and that the Poorness, poverty is necessarily a good thing. I don't really think it teaches that. The Bible's plain. We're saved by one thing and one thing alone. That's faith. And richness isn't a curse in the Bible. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men of his day. Zacchaeus, he gained his wealth totally dishonorably. Yet when he repented, he used it for for kingdom purposes. And Jesus Jesus admired that. Jesus complimented him for that. The implication here, I think, is that uh, the rich guy is reaping what he's sown. The Bible teaches that with the measure we dole it out, that's the measure it's, it's, we receive it back. And so I think there's an implication here from this passage that the rich guy when he was alive was insensitive to the poor. And and that's, that's why Abraham's reminded him, no, you had your good stuff back then. And, uh, and, and, and Lazarus was on the other side. It's not, I, I don't think it's true that being wealthy is necessarily an evil thing but it's definitely true and Jesus spoke of this as well that it's the, the wealthy tend towards self-reliance it's easier when you're poor to rely on God because there's nothing really else to rely on and so there is there, there, there is this I think facility when it comes to to relying on God and depending on God that the poor have that the rich don't have but it's possible to, to, to recognize that your blessings are from God and to use them for his kingdom and to be sensitive to the poor Back to the story, verse 26. Besides all this, between you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, here's the part that's kind of alarming, even scary. All the preparations we want to make for eternity have to be made before we die. Um, I know many of you are familiar with Henry David Thoreau. He wrote Walden. He wrote an essay on civil disobedience. Great career as a writer, very influential. Gandhi read his works. Uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., both learned things about uh, nonviolent protesting based on his, his writings. Uh, yet he was also uh, he's kind of a hero among humanists because he held firmly to his atheism right to the end. And he, on his deathbed, somebody came to him and said, nee, and Now that you're sick and dying, maybe you'd like to talk about uh, uh, your eternal destiny. And Thoreau's answer was this, one world at a time. And because of that, humanists today sort of celebrate his courage, his, his unwillingness to sell out at the end. To me, I, I can admire many parts of his career, but the logic of that deathbed statement sort of breaks down for me. Gina and I were uh, flying to Alaska last week. Not really, I'm just going to tell a story. And she said, uh, so we are on our way to the airport, she said, did you pack a coat? And I said, one city at a time. Uh, how much sense does that make? It, 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 the logic breaks down. And and the Bible, this story unmistakably teaches that no, we need to think about two worlds at a time. And we need to spend more time in this world thinking about the next world, because the choices we make here have an impact on the eternity we enjoy there. Uh, you bring it. I like. It. Now I'm going to break it down. <laughs> Here's a writer that I would suggest we listen to. His name is Erwin Lutzer. He's connected somehow with the Moody Institute in Chicago. I can't remember. I didn't write it down. He might be the pastor of the Moody Church up there, maybe the president of the Moody Bible Institute. But he wrote a book called One Minute After You Die. One minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you've never known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. He goes on to say this, You will either see God on his throne, surrounded by angels and redeemed humanity, or you will feel feel an indescribable weight of guilt and abandonment. There is no destination midway between these two extremes, just gladness and gloom. Back to the story. Rich guy's second request is this, verse 27. Then I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. I think it's often helpful to try to place ourselves in this story. So who are we? Are you the rich guy? No. Uh, the fact that he wore purple means he's richer than us. Uh, we're comfortable, we eat well, but we're not, we're not royalty rich. Most, some of you might be, but I think not. Uh, and you're not dead yet. Uh, also, we're not Lazarus. You know, I, Even the ones I just met today, we all are eat, eating well enough and clothed well enough that we're nowhere near Lazarus. If we're close to one of these guys, we're closer to the rich guy. But still we're still alive we're the five brothers we still have a chance to do something about our eternal destiny we still have a chance to hear do you need a warning from God if, if so you're getting what they didn't get this is it you get to hear the story and and the conclusions that Jesus draws verse 29 Abraham replied they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them this is so funny to me. Rich people, they, they make me laugh sometimes with their arrogance. Uh, you ever seen one in a store just like, a, you know, complaining about, oh, I won't stand for this. This is ridiculous. You're like, why does he act like such a jerk? It's just because, you know, the, the, evidently the wealth brings a sense of entitlement. This guy hasn't quite grasped where he is. No, Father Abraham, he said. It's a, I don't think we get to say no uh, at that point. But he hasn't quite caught on yet. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Now, when Abraham says they got Moses and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament, which was all the scripture they had then. And Abraham said, that's enough for you to rely on the promises of God. Do you think that you need a sign from God? Here's what I think. I think that we we miss so many of the signs from God that we're given. I know it's time to end the service, but uh, we started a little late. We're gonna finish a little late. uh, And uh, (laughs) um, I hope that's okay. I believe it's okay. Um, I'll wrap up soon after this, but we're gonna see a film clip of a guy who felt like he needed a sign, but he just was overlooking the ones that were there.
1: Just, just get a clue. Well, thank God you're all right. God, yeah, let's thank God, shall we? For his blessings are raining down upon me. Wait, that's not rain! Bruce, please don't do that, honey. You know that everything happens for a reason. That I don't need. That is a cliche, that is not helpful to me. A bird in the hands were two in the bush. I have no bird, I have no bush. God has taken my bird in my bush. Oh, I see, So, so God is picking on you? Is that what you're saying? No, he's ignoring me completely. He's far too busy giving Evan everything he wants. Oh, that's great, Sam. But you missed your target. I'm over here! Don't get mad at the dog. It's not the dog's fault. No, it's God's fault. You gave him the wrong coordinates. All right, you know what, enough. All right, will you just stop being such a martyr? I am not being a martyr. I'm a victim. God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. All right, sweetheart, I know that you're mad. It's completely understandable. What Evan did is slimy and wrong. But this day could have been so much worse. I'm just glad you're okay. Okay? Newsflash. I'm not okay. I'm not okay with a mediocre job. I'm not okay with a mediocre apartment. I'm not okay with a mediocre life. So is that what you think that we have? A mediocre life? Don't make this about you. <laughs> about me? How can I? It's about me. It's about you. It's always about you. Perfect. Perfect. I'll have the worst day of my life with a side order of guilt, please.
0: Okay, God. You want me to
1: talk to you. Then talk back. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Give me a signal. Slurp! Lord, please, send me a sign. Ah, oh, what's this joker doing now? Okay, all right, I'll try it your way. All right, Lord? I need a miracle. I'm desperate. I need your help, Lord, please reach into my life uh, what the yeah i you? got you. Ah!
0: <laughs> okay so the point is you know we have signs we have opportunities to hear from god and to see his direction and yet sometimes we ignore them cuz we're wanting the fire from heaven or whatever in fact uh the scriptures talk about this a lot. Um, over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, I brought you out of Egypt, and yet now you're turning to foreign gods. Uh, uh, they had the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. Um, uh, the miracles of Jesus uh, just hard, seemed to harden the hearts of the religious establishment back then. Um, interestingly enough, Jesus raised a guy from the dead whose name was Lazarus. Not this guy, a real guy named Lazarus, his friend from Bethany. And, of course, the empty tomb of Jesus. Uh, what more of a sign can we need? In fact, in Numbers 14, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I'd like, I encourage you to ask yourself this question. How will we respond to the miraculous signs God has performed among you? And the, the, what we would call the non-miraculous signs. I've, I've got a homework assignment today. I, I know you know I'm more of a teacher than a preacher, so I'll show it today. I'm gonna give you an assignment. Um, Several years ago, when our kids were little, we developed this discipline of what we called God sightings. It was uh, uh, during our devotional time, we would look back for things over the last few days or the, or the week, and, and we learned it from this Radio Bible Class 50-day adventure thing where we would uh, um, choose to believe that this thing or that thing that occurred in our lives were a result of God. And so I'm gonna encourage you to look back for those. I'm, I'm gonna look, encourage you to look for three. Uh, Prayers that God answered, times when he delivered you, times when you know that you called out to God and he was there or circumstances that you believe God arranged for your benefit. And in order to do something with it besides just think of them, tell somebody. You can email them to me if you'd like, but I think it would be more fun if you told them to each other. Um, And so think of your three this week, and uh, I don't know, maybe I'll ask somebody next week if if you did it, if you found them. Let's finish the story. Verse 31. He, this is Abraham, talking to the rich guy, said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I think it's so funny that Jesus would finish his story this way because obviously Jesus knows that they have Moses and the prophets and he's going to rise from the dead. And will you believe? We've got all that, right? You've got Moses and the prophets. You've got the New Testament gospel writers and the epistle writers and Jesus rose from the dead. And so we've got all of that. Uh, are we going to believe? So the point, I'll review what I started at the beginning. Earthly wealth or poverty is not a sign of God's favor or disfavor. Humans face definitely one of two distinct eternal destinies, and God has revealed himself enough for us to make decisions about him. Have you made that decision? If not, I'd encourage you to make it today. This parable is ultimately about the heart more than it is about money. Love for God will change your heart, and it will change your values. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and, Lord, we thank you for what you've shown us. Lord, I ask that you would, um, well, God, if there's anyone in this room who hasn't made that eternal decision, uh, who who hasn't uh, uh, made the step of believing in you, Lord, I ask that you would impress upon them today the need for that. And, God, I ask that you would change our hearts, that you would help us to be sensitive to the poor, help us to be grateful for the ways you've blessed us, Lord, help us to see this world through your eyes as we prepare to meet you in eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.